Hi everybody, I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the new podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. This week, we'll take a look at video distribution of live theater through online streaming, TV broadcast, and cinematic release. Tamis Gomez, the CEO of Scenarium, will talk to us about the streaming model, how they find and partner with productions around the world, and what some of the growing pains are as this new model develops. Then, we'll talk more specifically about how this applies to Broadway with Stuart Lane, the co-founder of Broadway HD. Finally, Broadway producer Ken Davenport will discuss his experiences in using the streaming model on his productions. But first... Here's what you need to know this week on The Great White Way. In a conversation at the Prince of Broadway opening, Broadway World's Richard Ridge asked Raul Esparza when he would be returning to Broadway. Raul teased that he'd return, quote, sooner than you think. There's speculation that he might play Henry Higgins in the upcoming revival of My Fair Lady. In less speculative casting news, Scott Rudin announced that Bernadette Peters will replace Bette Midler in Hello, Dolly!, Victor Garber will take over the role of Horace Vandergelder. While the official announcement came on September 5th, the news broke on social media two days prior when Garber's husband accidentally leaked the information in an Instagram comment. That brings us to grosses, where during Bette Midler's vacation last week, Hello Dolly suffered the biggest loss of any show, down almost $1.36 million from the week before. Unfortunately, that fit with the trend. Summer's over, and the summer box office bump has ended with it. The slump at the box office last week, the week ending September 10th, shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. There's always a drop-off after Labor Day, and if you look at the way grosses changed from last week for each show, it's pretty clear why. First, tourism decreases after Labor Day, which is why long-running shows like Wicked, The Lion King, and The Book of Mormon which sell a lot of tickets to tourists, suffered some of the harshest drops. Second, kids head back to school this week, and that's why the five family-focused musicals on Broadway were among the ten shows experiencing the biggest drops. Those are Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Anastasia, Aladdin, The Lion King, and School of Rock. None of this is to say that we should panic. The gross per show this week is only $2,000 less than it was last year at this time, an insignificant difference. Returning to some good news, Broadway Across America, the presenter that sends Broadway tours to 44 markets, has announced a record high in subscriptions sold for the 2017-2018 season at over 400,000 subscribers. This week we had another announcement for the 2018-2019 season. Aaron Sorkin's new adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird will begin performances on December 13, 2018. The announcement came 14 months prior to first preview, a very rare strategy. Mockingbird is now the fourth production to announce for next season, behind King Kong, Straight White Men, and Getting the Band Back Together. Back to this season, Disney's Frozen opens its pre-Broadway engagement in Denver, Colorado this week. Though official reviews aren't out yet, word on the street is that the production is disappointing. I'm told the set is underwhelming and the new songs unmemorable. I'm still really looking forward to it, so hopefully they can fine-tune things to make the show stronger before they open on Broadway in February. While talking Disney, 
Newsies, the Broadway musical, is now available on Netflix. That brings us to the main story this week, which is about capturing and distributing live theater through film. It is becoming more and more common to see an announcement of a show that is captured and will be broadcast via video. In only the three weeks since our last episode, three shows have announced video distribution. We found out that Broadway's Allegiance will be rebroadcast in cinemas by Fathom Events for Pearl Harbor Day on December 7th. And we also found out that two productions out of London will be filmed, the Young Vic production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, starring Sienna Miller and Jack O'Connell, and the West End production of Wind in the Willows, which will be released in cinemas and on Broadway HD. On top of those recent announcements, this week marks the start of the Promenade Festival, the first digital global performing arts festival brought to you by Scenarium, the global leader in streaming performance art. So, how did video capture and distribution of live theater become so popular that we hear a new announcement every week, and that there's now a performing arts festival built around the streaming model? And then more generally, what does the exponential growth of the streaming market mean for Broadway and the way we produce? I wanted to hear about the growth of streaming and the birth of the Promenade Festival straight from the horse's mouth. So I spoke to Scenarium CEO, Tamis Gomez. Tamis, thank you so much for talking to us today. For those who don't know, what is Scenarium? So we're actually bringing performing arts from all the cultural cities and theaters to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Uh, basically, we are a media company for visual and performing arts content. So we, you know, we are trying to bridge the gap of culture and technology. We have a library of about more than 200 scenarium branded and more than 150 licensed contents from all over the world. Right. And you are really a worldwide organization. Can you tell me briefly how scenarium got started? Uh, we actually began our operation about seven years ago in Brazil. And the whole motivation of Scenarium actually was the fact of enabling the masses access to performing arts. So the founders of Scenarium, they had, you know, they're, they're art lovers. So they had this interest in actually uh, being able to watch theater and operas and ballets uh, from the comfort of their home or f- where they were and not really needing to catch on a plane and and go to Paris or come to New York just for a show. So why not, you know, start recording these shows and make them accessible to people that don't have access to uh, great arts? So step one was figuring out the capturing of performance art and how you do that. How then did you evolve to where you are today, where you have this massive online library for streaming performance from around the world? Once we had enough library and, you know, with the upbringing of Netflix, we said, why not create a streaming platform in which we could actually, for a little subscription fee, give access to hundreds and millions of people shows that they would not see because either they're not in the city where these shows are are being performed or because the shows have already gone and, and, and you can't see it again. So... We want to document the arts in a way that not only is it kept for longer periods of time, but also 
um, give access to people that wouldn't have access to these performances and also provide a new monetization channel for, you know, for, for the producers and the actors that they wouldn't have today on digital. So basically, you know, this is what Scenarium is. I mean, we're, we're far more than a streaming platform. One concern I hear from people is that recording theater to then stream it or distribute it somehow via video will damage and cannibalize ticket sales for people who want to go see the piece live. People will watch the show online for 10 bucks instead of paying full price to see it in theaters. What do you and Scenarium think about that concern? But we want to actually bring more people to the theater. We feel that if you increase, if you build the audience, if you increase that audience, you know, if you teach people to actually enjoy again this sort of art, more people will go to the theater. That's how we feel about it. And and we can even drive parallels with other industries, right? If you talk about um, sports, sports, uh UFC, right? So UFC, I mean, who knew what UFC was about 15, 20 years ago? So it became more of this massive thing. And now every ticket to a live, you know, fight is sold out. I mean, all of them are sold out. It's become this huge thing. So why not do the same to the oldest form of entertainment? I mean, performing arts is um, an expression of the human being of the feelings of human being of the stories of human being. It's another way to tell stories that is being lost in a way to things that are easy, you know, that have easier access such as Netflix or even sports or, or, you know, or concerts and, and, and other stuff. So why not bring this, you know, back to where it deserves to be by uh, using the new technology out there? So that's our purpose. We don't think it's going to cannibalize. Right. And so something you touched on that I find really fascinating is that audience acquisition for a streaming service like Scenarium is likely very different from that of a live performance. So people who buy a ticket for one of my shows here in the city need to either live within reasonable traveling distance or be planning a visit to New York. Now, Netflix has very notably been able to churn out series after series with cult followings by using data to find their audiences. So unlike a Broadway show, a Netflix series can be a huge hit, even if its audience is widespread and consists of only one viewer from each city. So are you guys doing that type of work on the data and analytics end to find, A, the audience for things you already have in your library, and B, to identify productions around the world that you think would perform really well with your subscribers if you added them to your library. Yeah, so yeah, so that's most of our efforts right now at Scenarium is is related to that. It's like, we have a range of categories, right? So we have circus, stand-up, musical theaters, uh, we have opera, and we have dance, and we have ballet. And, um, and, and, and it's quite interesting to see how things actually change during the month. So we don't really, I can't really tell you that our bestseller is, uh, genre A versus genre B because it changes every day. And that's also because our audiences are always change, are also changing, right? As we grow, our audiences grow. We are able to reach more people and, um, and, and things also change in terms of what they're viewing, et cetera. 
So it's it's actually an interesting question because that is exactly at the stage that we're at. What works? Uh, what is what are the people interested in? Um, what kind of content can we actually license today? Today that is that we can actually test that in a cheaper way um, rather than go out and, and recording these things on our own, right? So so these are the questions that we have today, and we we try to use a lot of data analytics for that. And uh, also for our content um, and curation and selection, but we don't just use the data analytics for that. We still use a lot of the human aspect of you know what is interesting from an artistic point of view as well. So we make sure that we also capture that moment um, in time that the artist has actually produced something and uh, and 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 is able to make it you know eternalize it. Uh, through digital as well. So there's like this elements that we don't want to be too analytical about it, but because we don't want to lose that human, you know, that human aspect to it, but we also want to do it in a very, in a smart way. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's something actually that we've talked about on the show before is the idea that we are talking about art and sometimes numbers yeah. can't, can't fully capture, um, the art. Um, yeah. Is Scenarium, currently really focused on this curation or are the are there plans to create content um that's also an interesting uh, question we uh we don't really focus on the creation of content we we like to leave that to the artists because we think you know the artists are already responsible for that right they already do that very well uh what they're lacking is actually how do they how to get that arts in new ways or in new um, means of distribution that they can reach a bigger audience or even that they can create a new audience, especially the millennials. Millennials like a lot digital, right? They're very much focused onto their mobile um, phones and to their tablets and to their computers. And they're also focused into arts, but you don't have like this, the solution yet that actually bridges that gap. So how do you actually broadcast cultural experiences using technology to this new, you know, audience that is, is, is just coming up to the market, the millennials and the people that come after the millennials? So let's talk about the financing of the recording. Do you put up the capital or does the production? Oh, that's a, oh, that's a super cool question, actually. Thank you for asking that. Because we were, we were, um, how do you say we were paying for all the recording before up until 2015, we were paying for all the recording and that is very expensive. So we're trying right now to change this model a little bit in which, uh, everybody, you know, everybody wins, um, and everybody has like positive return on investment as well. So we are looking to like partner up with people that can also invest in uh, helping us record. We want to record. That's that's what we want to do, right? We want to continue to record what the artists are producing to, you know, to document that product, that artistic production, etc. But not, it's not always feasible because it's also very expensive in terms of the rights and 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 also coding the 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 audiovisual content and then editing it and putting the subtitles and making it available in all the formats, etc. So it's how do we, you know, how do we spread the risks? How do we, you know, how do we partner with people or find people that can partner with us? So that we can not only spread the risk, but also spread, you know, the, the, the gains. I'd imagine that because you operate globally, that you're working under different laws or different expectations from producers in different parts of the world. 
and that that may affect how the model looks from project to project. Yeah, and it's also the it also I mean it operates differently in different countries. Right here in the U.S., it's uh, we try and and work a deal with the producer because it's much easier for us to have a focal point, but not always that's possible. So you have like a lot of moving pieces as well in terms of who you have to make the deal with. Whereas in Brazil, if you work the deal with the producer, it's done. In Europe, it's much easier as well because uh, a lot of the the, the artists there they are um, employees of certain theater companies. So you just work the deal with the theater company. So it really depends on where you're operating and what the labor laws there are, you know, what the union laws are are there, what how the right laws are, etc. So that's like a know-how that Scenarium has been able to develop throughout these past seven years as well. And it's quite interesting. The way we do it is we have different kits of documents as well for each country. So, you know, we can actually scale that that production or that recording. If a producer is listening now and wants their production in the Scenarium library, what should they do? Well, they should definitely reach out to us. I mean, we're always looking, you know, for new content that that is like our, you know, our product. It's it's being able to show audiences always the new stuff, always, you know, show them good stuff uh, and always renew our library. So reach out to us and, and let's talk about it. Let's talk about, you know, what your budgets are. Can we do this together? Uh, or do you prefer to have all the rights to that? Would you like to sell it to other people as well? Or do you want it, you know, do you want Scenarium just to deal with that exclusivity? How, let's talk about how this can be done and how can we enable this together in a way that we can, you know, scale this in a, in a much better way. And then for anyone who's listening who wants to experience Scenarium, as an audience member, I know that there's a free trial and that all you have to do is visit www.scenarium.com to try that out. But you also have something coming up, the promenade, which is a free way to experience what Scenarium has to offer. So tell me a little bit about what that is. So promenade is a, is a way of us having like the first ever, you know, digital online you know digital festival that's available all over the world so theater and arts is is very much associated with festivals around the world right so you have avignon festival you have the edinburgh festival then you have the santos festival all over the world there's a festival but there is not a festival where everybody in the world can actually see at the same time so we decided why not make something you know unique so why not do this 10-day digital streaming festival where anybody can join and can watch and they can interact amongst themselves via the, the chat room and watch good shows, good, you know, good pieces of art online. And that's, and that's totally free. Yeah, totally free. Uh-huh, totally free because we also want to teach people about art. So Scenarium isn't, I mean, it's, it's not like we don't want to be restrictive with regard to, to the, arts we want to increase our audience we want to teach people with regard to arts you know we want to get that knowledge back from the arts and and make people appreciate it more so not only do we have the prominent festival which is free you know it's this uh it's this very uh temporal thing that we're doing right now it's going to be just for 10 days but we also have the blog in which we talk a lot about arts we also have our digital magazine in which we we um, try to be very 
how do you say, uh, simple about our language as well, because we also want to talk to the people that don't understand it because people need to learn things, right? They need to, uh, to have accessibility and to try it out before they can actually decide if they like it or they don't like it. So we want to remove all the barriers that we can to have, you know, more people enjoying this form of art. If any of you listening are interested, I really recommend checking out Scenarium.com and signing up to be part of the Promenade Festival, which begins on September 15th. Those Scenarium's growth and business model clearly affect how we operate on Broadway. They haven't yet acquired Broadway or off-Broadway content. For more information on how the streaming model works on Broadway... I turned to Stuart Lane, the co-founder of Broadway HD, which in the last few years has become the name in streaming for Broadway and off-Broadway content. So, Stuart, how did Broadway HD come to be? Well, it's a very good question. You know, these things don't uh, happen overnight, and you can say it's been an evolution that started... Uh, started way back when, let's say in the 80s. I mean, as, as television evolved into cable and pay-per-view, you know, certain platforms were available to uh, the Broadway theater that uh, people tried for. Uh, even as, as early as 1980, uh, 1991, when I was doing Will Rogers Follies, I teamed up with the Japan Satellite Broadcasting System, and we actually recorded it and uh, showed it you know, solely in Japan, which was one of the early captures. In the early 80s, there was... Uh, mostly for DVD and pay-per-view usage, uh, sophisticated ladies, tintypes. I saw the future in streaming, and I wanted to get to be the first one there. So along the way, I uh, shot a few shows along the way to test the water. I shot uh, about maybe 11 years ago, Cyrano de Bergerac with Kevin Klein. I produced the Broadway show and actually shot the uh, shot it with, and we were able to use it on a DVD, and we had uh, PBS Broadcasting. Uh, and as, as well as, as cable. So we had more platforms available. I think ultimately I was able to see technology and our culture converge into a singularity, which indicated that the future was, was here and now was the time to act on it, to be the first to do a, a streaming of Broadway shows. You could see that audiences were now watching entertainment on their iPads and their cell phones like they'd never done before. They were watching shows like Smash, and my crazy ex-girlfriend, and and Broadway itself, it was on a 25-year tear, improving every year in terms of uh, terms of uh, sales, and uh, and grosses. So you've had this amazing renaissance in uh, in, in the theater industry and a popularity never seen before. And I said this is an ideal time to try and make Broadway affordable and accessible to a larger public, and that's what that really inspired us to launch it when we did. Let's unpack this and get into how Broadway HD functions now. Do producers of shows decide they want to stream and call you, or do you identify productions that would perform well on Broadway HD and contact their producers? It's a combination of both. Uh, sometimes they call us up. Uh, sometimes they uh, they actually shoot it for uh, invite us in to shoot it. Uh, they, they've paid for it, so it depends on on the individual deal. But yes, uh, often they they'll contact me and uh, ask us to shoot it. And so how long is it from the time that that phone call happens to the time that we see the show 
on the Broadway HD catalog and what happens in that time to ready the production to be captured? Uh, well, we've got the system down pretty well these days. So we move very quickly and more often than not, we're given very short notice. But it's a combination, of course, of uh, getting the intellectual property rights. It's getting the all the unions on board. And mind you, there are 17 unions that we have to deal with with each show. There's the uh, it's the getting getting the lighting. We we try and keep the show intact as much as possible, but because it is cameras, there are certain lighting effects that we try to do. Uh, same thing with sound. Uh, we 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 have to plug into the soundboard. We actually go through the the mics themselves that that the actors are using. Um, we have to set up a, our own little mobile studio within the theater, and of course it's hard to find a spot because most of the theaters are not capable of, of, how, of supporting us there. We've been in the men's room, or we've been in the lobby, we've been in storage rooms, you know, that kind of thing, uh, with, with, with trucks on the street as well. It's a process where we've used up to 14 cameras when we shot She Loves Me, uh, which was uh, our first live shoot, which, by the way, made the Guinness Book of World Records as the first live shoot from a Broadway theater to stream. And, uh, and it, it, it's, it's helped us create, a, in fact, a new art form in itself, where instead of just sitting in the fifth row center to watch a show, you're actually getting you know, 15 different angles, uh, close-ups and, and points of view that you would never have seen before. And it helps with the uh, dramatic and comedy of, of the shows that you're watching. And who puts up the capital for the stream? Is it Broadway HD or the production? Uh, well, in one case, it was the producers of the show. In another case, uh, we, we were able to put up the money. Uh, in some cases, we actually do a pre-sale to uh, uh, PBS Broadcasting, uh, which helps. So there are, you know, again, multiple platforms that are available today that were not available as early as you know, 10 years ago. So not only is there the streaming, the live stream that we can do at the beginning, but then there's the in-cinema because the movie houses are looking for alternative content. And the idea of streaming a Broadway show is something as exciting as well as the Metropolitan Opera did. So you've got the uh, in the cinema, you've got the broadcast PBS, you've got uh, ultimately a home on Broadway HD as part of our library of 220 shows that we have now. So it's very, very exciting. So th there's more possibilities for things to happen. Uh, and it, but each show is taken on an individual basis. So while you've clearly been thinking about the streaming model for decades, to the community, I think this is still quite new. That said, when conversations come up at the producer's table about how to exploit a Broadway title to the fullest extent, on top of tours, cast albums, and licensing, at this point, there's got to be a talk about streaming. Why might a producer decide streaming isn't the right choice for their production? I don't know why they would think that, because uh, the, the fact of the matter is this is the greatest marketing tool you could use for your show. You know, it's sort of sort of similar to. Uh, I'll give you two examples. One is when they first do it, started doing original Broadway cast recordings. If you heard the score from the Broadway show My Fair Lady, would that make you want to see the show? Or I've already heard the music. I don't need to go see it now. Or on another comparison, you could watch the Super Bowl game by flying to the Super Bowl and ordering your hot dogs and beer and watching it. Or you can watch the same Super Bowl game while you're at home with your friends on a big screen with commentary and popcorn. Each one's a different experience, but but each one's very exciting. Right, and I think that that is something that a lot of people think. You know, a lot of people seem to worry about can, this idea of cannibalization of ticket sales. But 
as you've said in other industries, and I, I think even in, in our own studies have, have looked at what the National Theater does with, with NT Live, and they've shown that, in fact, it increases ticket sales. So, Oh, yeah, they, they did They did a show with Helen Mirren, and they showed it here first in the in cinemas. Uh, they don't stream online. They, they do in cinema. But it didn't hurt the sales at all. In fact, uh, a show that I produced, uh, Legally Blonde, was shot by MTV for cable. And by showing it on their website, on their uh, cable station for a month, it enhanced ticket sales here in New York and actually branded the show better for the road. So that brings us to the question, why isn't every show on Broadway on Broadway HD? I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head. Every show on Broadway should be streamed. You're absolutely right, and I think it might be a matter of uh, of timing and uh, and and finances. You know, I mean, we can't finance every Broadway show that we want to shoot. Uh, we can always use help with that. So we so we you know we try and pick and choose uh, as we go along, and we've we've tried to in, increase our umbrella so it includes not only just the Broadway shows but some of the more interesting off Broadway shows as well. We we did a show called The Woodsman. I don't know if you saw this one. It, it's uh it's sort of a take on how the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz became the Tin Man, and it's an amazing piece of theater where it's uh, poetic and it's creative and it's fascinating, and it's one of those. And we were able to capture it and save it because it's hard for the producers to describe what they did. In fact, they've been able to license more productions of the show because of people watching it on Broadway HD than they could without it. One of the reasons typically offered for why this industry is so far behind similar ones is the number of unions that we have to deal with. And you mentioned before that there are 17 on any one capture that you have to deal with. Is there union opposition to streaming? You know, I've been producing shows now for 40 years, and I can say that the for the first time in a long time, I've actually seen the unions embrace a concept of something new. Uh, they see a changing world. You know, 10, even 15 years ago, if I went to the unions with a new idea, I might be stopped because I was the young guy with new ideas. Well, today I'm the old guy. They're the young ones, and they get it. That's how they watch their entertainment. They see that that's the future. When I'm shooting a Broadway show, everybody involved in the Broadway community benefits by it, uh, you know, financially and through exposure. Certainly when the television shows like the network's uh, do a live shoot of Peter Pan or Grease, that doesn't come back to the industry. That stays with TV. We are actually giving back to the community, and, and, and I'm very proud of that. So it sounds like the real answer to the question of why everyone isn't capturing and streaming their productions is partially about financial limitations, and then also that there isn't total awareness among producers of how this works and what doors streaming their production would open up uh it, you know it's a learning process and, and and certainly the it's been amazing but the whole attitude and, the, and we've only been uh, alive alive and going uh it'll be two years in october we started in october of 2015 so we're not even two years old yet and yet the attitude change in the community at large has been tremendous where where at first they were very uh suspicious they're certainly embracing us now well so let's try to educate and continue encouraging people to embrace this model. And I think a question that most people would have is what does the cash flow look like back to the production? Well, you know, again, each shows a different deal. Sometimes it's a revenue sharing basis. Uh, sometimes there is some money up front. Uh, it depends on whether it's a you know, tier one or tier two kind of production, uh, whether it's a musical or a play. 
Uh, a lot of factors come, come into play. Is it a revival or an original? You know, all the factors that come into it. We have to deal with star power or not star power. Now, on the other side of the screen uh, or of the device, you have your consumers. And there are two ways currently that people can watch Broadway HD. They can either pay $8.99 a month for a subscription to access your library, or they can pay a rental fee of $14.99 to access an individual item. Does Broadway HD see more daily active users taking monthly subscriptions or one-time rentals? Oh, I think the uh, monthly subscriber at uh, $9.99 is, uh, this is our favorite. Um, we do have some, we do have annual subscribers because we keep adding content every month. So, uh, in fact, this month we're adding uh, Present Laughter with Kevin Klein. Uh, that'll be on in a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, so they, we, we, we're building. I mean, we've had amazing growth. Uh, for this, uh, for almost two years we've been around, which is, ex- of course, very encouraging. And certainly the, uh, I think the media community at large has been very excited about what we're doing because we're, we're offering high quality entertainment. And, uh, that's, and it's, you know, it's Broadway. It's New York. It's the greatest talent pool that America has to offer. And the diversification that we have, uh, both on stage, whether it's, uh, physically in, uh, the actors and the directors or, and the content that we have. So let's talk about expansion. Broadway HD has seemingly exploded over the past 18 to 24 months. How does the streaming model continue to grow? Is it about content acquisition? Is it that the person with the most content has the most subscribers and making sure there are new and numerous titles available at all times? Or at this point, is it about awareness and marketing or about increased resources? What drives this sector of this industry? Well, certainly the social media has been a major factor in, in who our audiences are. You know, it's kind of fascinating because we've done some analytics in the short time we've been around. And one major comparison, the, the, the shocking thing that stands out is that if you look at the surveys that the Broadway League, of which I'm a member, has done you know, for the last 50 years, the needle really hasn't changed much. It's been, uh, you know, uh, people 65 and older. Uh, I mean, I think the average age was about 45 years old is the average ticket buyer. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's 65% women purchasing the tickets. It's uh, higher education, uh, educated people. It's higher income brackets. And that's for the Broadway and the community at large and throughout the country that buys theater tickets. The people that are watching Broadway HT are 18 to 44 years old. They're young people. They're the, they're the future. And uh, I find that really exciting because they're thrilled. They're thrilled with theater. This sort of goes back to that cultural aspect I mentioned with hit shows like Smash or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or shows like America's Got Talent. Uh, people are taking a real interest in the live entertainment, and Broadway is still, you know, the Valhalla, the the Palace Theater, the 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 the, the creme de la creme of that talent. Yeah, and that's really amazing. I know a conversation that I feel like we're constantly having as a community of. Broadway professionals is about what we can do to attract audiences outside of that average ticket buyer demographic. And anything that's doing that is golden. Let's talk about where your users are. Are most of your users from New York and exposed to Broadway and therefore interested in subscribing to Broadway HD? Or are they from all over the country with limited access to Broadway and Broadway HD is the only way they're going to experience what it's like to be in a Broadway theater. We are getting responses from all over the country. 
which makes it even more exciting. Uh, certainly there are certain con concentrations uh, in, in the major cities like Los Angeles, New York, but we find generally it's a spread across, uh, which makes it even more rewarding for us at Broadway HD. So we've recently seen VR as another mechanism for capturing live performances and for mimicking the experience of sitting in a theater uh, and being able to decide where you're going to look. And we've seen that with productions like The Lion King and School of Rock in the last year or so. Do you see VR in the future of the streaming model for theater? You know, I definitely see VR uh, as part of the future for us. I think that uh, at initial blush, you've got to have the right material for this kind of uh, capture. You know, it's a 360-degree uh, shoot, so you would really need a, a show that, that, that could take advantage of that because if you're sitting in a regular proscenium theater, looking at the back of the house, a dark, a dark house is not very exciting. But um, years ago, uh, Hal Prince did a production of um, Candide, where the audience actually sat in the middle, and all the action took away took took place in the uh, parameters around the audience. So you sat on a stool and kept turning your direction to see it. That might have been a production worth shooting in VR. But you've got to be able to get a director that can tell you when to look, where to look, uh, and that's going to be challenging. Broadway HD has recently partnered with 13 productions to air productions on PBS and Alexander Street to create educational opportunities out of Broadway HD captures. How have these partnerships and any other partnerships affected the future of the business? Well, I suppose you could you know, say that the, the importance of teaming up with uh, PBS uh, it was, was, it was important to us initially because it helped to legitimize Broadway HD and what our mandate was by having an institution like that on our side. They're basically our production arm. And sometimes we even, you know, so they, they do take some of our material, not always. Uh, we've also teamed up with companies like Screen Vision and Fathom for the in-cinema release. So, you know, I, guess I see that as, as, as ongoing relationships uh, as well as, probably, you know, you mentioned the VR community as well down the road. You know, I have to say, it's really clear from speaking to you that the opportunities are endless and streaming really brings a whole new model for us as producers to use and look at when considering how to best capitalize on theatrical properties. Well, absolutely. This, this, you know, this is a, it's a, it's a new frontier. I, I can make a comparison like television in the early days. You know, it's not regulated. It's, op it's open. We're discovering a new audience. It's a new way of marketing something because it's a, where is our audience? How do we get to that audience? And it's a young audience. Uh, the future of Broadway right there uh, that we can reach early. You know, it's like seeing your first Broadway show. Uh, it's unforgettable usually. That's that, uh, Certainly when I saw mine, it changed my life. And I'm hoping that we can be a life changer with Broadway HD. And by bringing Broadway to people that are far from Broadway – I think that's a very real possibility. When we streamed, when we streamed, she loves me. Uh, we hit eighty-four countries. Watched our show. Wow. Yeah. So earlier, I, I said something about your audience all over the country. We're really talking about worldwide reach. Yeah, we have global access, and so we're concentrating right now on, on North America, the U.S., and then Canada, really. But we have made uh, deals with uh, with uh, Argentina and South Korea and Japan. And, uh, and China. So we are working you know, on expanding our influence. So right now, Broadway HD is the definitive name in Broadway streaming. 
Who do you see as major competition? Could Netflix come in tomorrow and wipe you out? Well, we have the, we have the advantage of having been the first out there, and we are the only ones streaming Broadway shows the enti- in its entirety. You know, we're not doing clips. Uh, you know, we, we show scenes from the show. We have behind the scenes, but we get to show with the whole the whole show, the whole ball of wax, the whole enchilada from beginning to end, and uh, that makes us unique. And it's going to take, I think, years for someone else to try and catch up to us. We've heard from two of the biggest live performance streaming platforms, but we haven't yet gotten a producer's perspective on streaming, which is where Ken Davenport comes in. Ken, who is producing the upcoming revival of Once on this Island, and is our lead producer on next season's Getting the Band Back Together, also produced the 2015 off-Broadway production of Daddy Longlegs, which he live-streamed all over the world. So Ken, you made history and really laid the groundwork for the streaming model with the live stream of Daddy Longlegs back in 2015. That's right, yeah. Daddy Longlegs was the first show ever to be live streamed from Broadway or off-Broadway to the rest of the world. Being the first show to stream live, you must have had a lot of planning and a lot of obstacles to overcome that may not be issues anymore, or maybe they are. So I want to understand some of the puzzle pieces that you had to put together to make this happen for the first time. How long did it take from the time you came up with the idea to the day that you streamed? Well, not as much as you think. And, you know, a common question I got from people when I told them I was doing it or when I did it they was, how did you do that? Because the concept, especially to us theater people, seems like so foreign or so technological or so challenging, unions, etc. And first of all, the technology part of it, I mean, look, we could live stream this podcast right now around the world with the device that's in my pocket. The technology wasn't the challenging part. You know, I, I, people said, who helped you with this? I said, I Googled and I went, I found a company called livestream.com. I mean, it was literally that challenging. Uh, two, of course, the unions and the, the negotiations with labor is, is probably the most challenging part. And the reason is, is because it's still somewhat unchartered territory in that we don't know, nobody, I mean, I probably have more data uh, than most because we don't know the value of these things. But frankly, I don't I won't know the real value for years and years and years. So it's very hard for unions to put price tags on things when they don't know the value of it in their defense. Like, look, when when as a producer, a negotiator, anytime I'm doing a deal with someone, I'm constantly trying to say, where are they coming from? Well, they're simply coming from this perspective. Which if they had a blog, they call it the union's perspective. It, it they're coming from this place of we don't know how much this is worth. It could they're going to take the bullish position of it could be worth millions. Therefore, we have to charge a lot because we don't want our members. Like union leaders are constantly in fear of their members coming to them, yelling at them, saying you shortchanged me. So the unions have to protect themselves and their members by asking for significant amount a significant amount of money because frankly we just don't know yet I, I i think they're overestimating right now i think it's more a marketing tool than anything else 
but that's the most challenging part. Right, and the number of unions that we have to deal with in this industry is often the reason that it's hard to keep up with the changing times and technologies as producers, which I guess is what's happening in the case of streaming. I I think look the, one of the reasons that I did it I'd always I'd been dreaming about this for many many years on many shows and you know I have a list of marketing ideas or or things and stunts and all sorts of things that I want to do on all on a show when the right show comes along and live streaming one was one of those things so one of the reasons I did it on Daddy Long Legs is because it was off Broadway and there are fewer unions. There are fewer labor deals to make. So I knew that would be easier to navigate. Uh, another reason, frankly, I controlled the theater, right? It was at my theater. So I knew a deal with the theater owner would be much easier to make. Um, so I wouldn't say that, look, I think actors equity, that, this is the other thing. People were like, how did you deal with the unions? And I was like, I called them up and asked them. I said, I want to do this. Can we talk about this? And unions actually want to cut deals. There is this feeling that they're like, oh, no, you can't, you can't, you can't. No, it's not about you can't. They they just want to know that their members are being taken care of, whether that's financial, whether that's temperature backstage, whether it's whatever it is. Actors Equity probably has done this more often in more contracts than some of the other unions. Uh, but I found that like they were all willing to talk and and interestingly enough, off the record, I've found that lots of leadership across all sorts of unions in this industry know that this is something that is going to be a big part of our of our industry. It's just, again, figuring out those puzzle pieces, like you said. So, Ken, you started talking about this, but I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail on what about Daddy Longlegs made you feel that it was the right property to live stream? Well, there are a couple of things. From a practical and logistical perspective, I mentioned, look, it was off-Broadway. It was in my theater. I knew I could control it, right? I also knew from a practical perspective it was going to look fantastic. And if any of you saw it out there, any of you listeners saw it, I think you'll agree that it looked great. And if you or if you haven't seen it, go on Broadway HD and watch it. It looks fantastic. And one of the reasons it looks fantastic is not because we had 8,000 cameras or even the best cameras on the planet. The show has two people in it. Two people, that's it. And it's a unit set. It's also, we had a narrow stage, right? So I knew that the filming of the show, it would be easy to capture, to get close-ups, to get really good frame shots that would look great on camera and that it would look like a television show, like a really good musical soap opera, if you will. And I was able to test that. We shot some B-roll. And when I saw the B-roll, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to look amazing. So the, one of the practical logistical reasons was that. The other, from a producerial uh, perspective, one of the reasons why I did it was because off-Broadway shows are exceptionally hard to market. In today's, in today's climate, getting attention for an off-Broadway show is challenging. I knew that being the first show to do this would get a lot of attention and eyeballs on the show just from a press perspective, number one. And number two, look, we did research after the fact and we had 150,000 people watch that thing in 135 countries around the world, okay? I can put maximum number of people into that theater of about 150 a night. That's eight 
that's 800, it's 1,200 people a week, right? So do the math. 150,000 divided by 1,200 divided by 52. In one, over the course of a 24, 48-hour period, I got 2.4 years of sold-out audiences. Right. And something that I talked about with both Tamis and Stuart is that there's this belief that some have that streaming cannibalizes ticket sales. But we've seen certainly in other industries and also even in our own that streaming probably sells more tickets than it deters. Yeah, that's 100% accurate. Look, are you going to lose some people? Yeah, you are. There's no question, but you're going to gain a hell of a lot more than you're going to lose, not only in physical people saying, oh, my gosh, I want to go see it now, but also the press and marketing power of it is just going to have so much more word of mouth on the street. The pros are certainly going to outweigh the cons. I, we got this from anecdotal evidence of people coming and saying, oh, I saw the live stream. I wanted to see it now live. Uh, we got it because we sent a uh, ticket discount to everyone that signed up to tune in. We sold thousands of dollars worth of tickets based on that email blast. Um, it, 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 there's no question it gets more butts in seats. And I guess that's why you decided to make it free to view the live stream. That's exactly right. I, I was going for press and I was going for eyeballs. I wasn't going to make money. I looked at this like a marketing line item in my advertising budget. That's what I did. I also knew it would be easier to cut deals with the unions if I said, I'm not charging money. I'm not trying to make money. I'm just trying to get the word out there. Some people would put the money that we spent on it towards a commercial. I would rather just live stream it. So I asked before what made Daddy Longlegs the right show to stream. As someone who's used the streaming model in their producing, why might streaming be the wrong strategy for a show? Well, one of the number one reasons that I did it was for marketing. So if you if you don't need the marketing, what you're going to do is the reverse strategy, right? A, a show like Hamilton or going back even further, Phantom of the Opera hit Broadway and didn't tour right away, right? Cameron had a very specific strategy, and a strategy he's he also employed on Cats, but he didn't he didn't tour Cats until he could deliver the Broadway experience on the road, and then Phantom he delayed as well. And I believe that part of that strategy on Phantom was like I want to create a destination, I want a flagship, I want to be running for thirty years. Hello, he did it. I want to get people coming to New York. I wanted to feel that special. And it worked on me. We never traveled more than 60 miles from Sturbridge, Massachusetts to see theater, except for Phantom of the Opera. We figured out how to get on a train and get here three hours away because we had to see it and we couldn't wait. So there's something to be said when you have something that's really in demand to restrict it, of course, to make it scarce, to put up a velvet rope, to have a line out front. And when you have something that's in demand already, you can do that. Right. So I, I want to get back to the, the idea of um, knowing the value of the video capture. One thing we're not very used to as theater producers is having assets or, or content to promote after we close the show. Usually you close the show and you know you close the books and that's it. What does – the inclusion of the streaming model due to what it means to close a show. Are you actively doing things still on the, to, to promote Daddy Longlegs? 
Yeah, we are. I mean, look, one of the downstream revenue sources for that show would be licensing, right? And I knew it's one of the reasons I also produced it is because I thought this show will be done in theaters all over the country and all over the world. Two people, romantic, based on a classic book written by John Caird, who wrote Les Mis, directed by him, Paul Gordon. Like, uh, it's it's going to be done. It will be done more if people can be exposed to it. And because it was off-Broadway, it didn't have tons of eyeballs here, right? Only 150 people a night. And it didn't have three giant national tours or sit-downs. So I wanted another way that people could get exposed to this beautiful piece, and that's through HD. So we, we, we sold the rights to air to Broadway HD. They're doing that now. It's very popular there. And we're encouraging people to go watch it because the more people that watch it there, the more people that will do it, the more people that will buy the CD, and that will trickle down to my original investors. So, Ken, it's been almost two years since you live-streamed Daddy Long Legs, and so much has happened since then. Do you have any predictions as to where the streaming model will go from here? Well, at some point, I think we will figure out what the dollar value is to this. I also think that right now, it's not being done that often. Thankfully, we do have a Broadway HD that's stepping up and doing a number of properties, but it's not that many, right? It's mostly British stuff because the British stuff can be done much easily, much more easily. The stuff here, like, and I believe we're going to get to a point where people are going to be like, every show should be done this way. Every show should be captured, whether or not it should be live streamed or whether or not it should be played while the show is running, I leave that up to the individual producers to decide. Although I would remind them that we have data that every time a movie is released that is based on a musical that's running, that musical's box office increases, right? Look at the grossest of Phantom of the Opera and then see what happened after the movie uh, was released way back in the day. So I believe that we will get to a place where everything is captured. Uh, and I think that's a really good thing. We'll be able to create not only downstream revenue potential for our investors, but for the actors, for the designers, for the writers that will allow them to keep writing. That's the thing that bugs me sometimes that this hasn't happened. I know everyone's trying to protect people, but man, oh man, we could create additional ways to make money in the arts that could keep these people writing, acting, directing instead of going back to survival jobs. Ken, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. If anyone listening wants to hear more from Ken, who has a lot of valuable things to say, you can check out his blog, The Producer's Perspective, at www.theproducersperspective.com. And be sure to get tickets to Once on This Island, which opens in November at the Circle in the Square Theater. Before we end, I wanted to pay a brief tribute to Michael Friedman, the brilliant composer who passed away last weekend due to complications from AIDS. Friedman was only 41, and his works included Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, Love's Labor's Lost, The Fortress of Solitude, and his many contributions to the civilians. It is rare that a composer is able to blend musical genres so gracefully and with such mastery. The community mourns the premature loss of Michael and his iconic voice. 
Thanks for listening to The O'Henry Report. We'll be back with a new episode the week of September 25th. You can find The O'Henry Report on broadwayworld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye.